Hi, you're listening to The Obvious Question. I'm Becky Smith, the one who walks. And I'm Maddie Lawson, the one who sits. And today we're getting all up in the feels Mm -hmm. and talking about mental health. Yeah, today we have two chunks of the episode and they don't exactly go together, but they talk about two very distinct but I think incredibly important facets of mental health when it comes to anybody, but especially with the life of someone who who has a disability. The first chunk we're going to be talking or listening rather to your friend Hayden, who did like a local TEDx talk. And that's kind of about questioning the assumptions about mental health and individuals who have disabilities. And then the second half of the episode is uh, about a very personal story for you. It's about your friend Zarina, who also had SMA, spinal muscular atrophy, and actually passed away last December uh, at the age of 18, right? Mm-hmm. And that part of the episode is really kind of a reflection for you, and it's a look at love and loss and the lasting impact, and also looking at sometimes the isolation of of having a disability, the isolation that can exist, you know, being a person who has a disability and also a person that has, you know, mental health struggles. really want this episode just to show that the emotions that I experience, even though the experiences in my life might be a lot different from that of an able-bodied person, my emotions are pretty similar. I still do struggle I still do have days that I'm I'm not strong not always on I'm not always happy even though sometimes I feel pressured to look that way and just people looking from the outside seeing me you know laughing at my life they might see it that way I'm not and I think that it's important to be able to accept that for anyone so this is kind of very raw emotion that not a lot of people get to see well you ready as ready as i'll ever be (laughs) let's do it Hayden Crystal, and I am a deaf, bisexual, transgender Jew. But I'm lots of other things too, right? I am not just those four descriptors. You can't just give those four descriptors and get a whole idea of who I am. I am white. I believe Sherwin Williams calls this neon white, if this is a shade that you're interested in. Hayden was actually a TA for my ASL class. We started making really crude um, disability jokes with each other and (laughs) just like bonded and fell in love in that moment. To this day, we hit each other up for like fashion advice. And Hayden is deaf. Hayden is deaf. Well, okay, so let's go ahead and take a listen and a look. We're listening to the importance of intersectional accessibility and activism. And Hayden Crystal? Mm -hmm. Hayden Crystal. I have a really good friend who has cerebral palsy, he uses a power chair, and he's a gay man. So my friend uses attendants, and he uses you know, people who come in and help him do things like everyday tasks that are difficult for him, something like bathing or going to the bathroom. And those things aren't necessarily sexual, but they're intimate. And my friend is an out and proud gay man, so do you think if one of his attendants come and is a homophobic man, again, either consciously outright or even just in quiet ways, 
do you think that's going to color the kind of care and the quality of care that my friend receives? Absolutely. Can we pause? Yeah. That's something that I think a lot of people deal with. Like, I've never even thought about that with someone being homophobic and someone being gay. I don't know. Like, even if you're a care attendant's upset with you, like, that codes their, like, quality of care and stuff. Do you ever feel like you have to, like, cage your emotional response to things that you have? Yeah. Yeah. No, that's been the biggest struggle, I think. Um, Emotionally, it's been exhausting because, like, you know, having to go through my day and talking to people all day and doing all that, sometimes I just want to be not on. But, like, you have to be on. And if you're not on, the person can assume, like, oh, they're upset with me. And I never wanted them to feel like I was upset with them. We want to dive back in? Yeah. Okay. And so why would it come up to you if you were planning an event like this, if you've never had to think about it, why would you think, is this wheelchair accessible? Should we have interpreters? Is the material large print? Is it braille? Why would you think about that, right? So I think that most bigotry is just this little bubble of ignorance. And if we can just pop that bubble, then I think things will really start to change. Because you can't change what you don't acknowledge. I think a lot of times people perceive disability and expect people to be sad and expect people to be, you know, just defeated. And so sometimes when I am feeling sad and I am feeling defeated, I feel like I shouldn't feel that way because that proves everyone right. I feel like people don't really see me when they look at me and that's not the first thing I want them to see to think is like, wow, like, I feel so bad for you. Like, your life is so hard. I get why you're sad. I don't want people to pity me. I don't want people to feel bad for me. I just want to be seen as, oh, she's having a bad day or she's upset today because of this. I just don't want my sadness to be something that is expected because I don't think that my life is any lesser because of my disability. I think it's more challenging at times, but I think everyone has challenges and um, I just wear mine on the outside. You said sad for the wrong reasons, right? That's how you described it to me when we were talking about this episode. People feel sad for you for the wrong reasons. Um, People kind of assume, like, oh, she's probably sad because she's in a wheelchair. Like, I never wake up like, oh, my God, like, I can't walk. Um, Because I just have always been that way, and I don't expect my body to be something it's not. So I'm not sad about that. I'm sad about, you know, boys and, like, my lack of access to certain things. Or I over – I'm – innately an overthinker I think you know someone invites you to dinner on a Friday night and their first thoughts are like oh yeah like totally let's go to this new trendy place my thoughts are okay is this place going to be accessible what time are we going to go so I know what time I have to leave because I don't have transportation to get there is it close enough for me to drive there is there an accessible bathroom if I do need to pee what exactly there's just so many things it's not just like oh let's go to dinner I sometimes don't let myself feel things anymore because I don't think I can feel them without breaking down. Like, because I see, I see my friends and how frustrated they get when I can't get into a place. And it's not that I'm not frustrated that I can't get in. It's just that I know if I let that get to me, I'm going to be sad for a long time. And I'm going to be angry always because those barriers, they don't end. It's not one restaurant. It's not one bathroom. It's most places. You know, accessibility isn't treated as a right. It's treated as a privilege. And it's treated as, 
you know, oh, we're accessible. We have a back entrance. You have to go in this disgusting alley that smells like piss and pass a dumpster and then you can get inside. It's just dehumanizing and it makes you feel like you're less or you're inconvenient. And that's something that I struggle with every day is convenience. Um, Even with like people taking care of me that are friends, like I'll find out they have an exam or something. And then I'm like, I'm not going to shower tonight because that's going to take too long and they need to study and they're stressed out. And it's just like hard to not let my emotional attachment to someone determine how I take care of myself. And it's just because they are so intertwined and there's not really a way to separate the two. Now we're going to talk about your friend, Zarina. Zarina was one of your best friends. She also had one of the forms of muscular dystrophy you have, spinal muscular atrophy or SMA, and she passed away in December. So I want you to take me back about how to how you guys actually met. Our love story began back my sophomore year of high school when I had just gotten like noticed on Instagram by a couple of different like celebrities and stuff and so my page was like one of the first ones that would pop up whenever you typed in like wheelchair she had never met someone else that had um SMA before except for her brother her like she lives in um San Benito Texas which is like on the very southern tip and it's a very um rural town then one day She just, like, DM'd me, and she was like, hey, I hope this isn't, like, totally weird and, like, stalkerish. I've been following you for a really long time. I'm obsessed with your looks. You're so good at makeup. You're so beautiful. But for some reason, I was like, you need to talk to her. Like, something just told me, like, you need to. We were just very kindred hearts. The way that we saw the world, although we had grown up in these completely seemingly separate universes, we understood each other on a level that it's very rare to find someone that connects with you that deep that started becoming a regular thing we would skype at least once a week and then it turned into every single day we shared the same interests for like disney movies and demi lovato demi lovato was literally her hero she has a quote on her wall that says and now i'm a warrior and that couldn't be more true i don't think It was obvious from the beginning of our friendship that there was a lot of pain um, that she had never shared with anyone. She had never felt like she could talk to someone about some things because she never felt like anyone really understood those things. And within the first couple weeks of us like talking, she told me about her depression and how it had put her in a place that she at one point actually wanted to end her life a lot of her depression stemmed from her isolation um her town that she grew up in it's very small there's not really a lot going on there and she ended up dropping out of public school 
her freshman year of high school, which like before then she had pretty much been homeschooled because with SMA, you have a weak immune system. And so you get sick often. So her doctor and her decided that it was just best that she stayed home. When she would get sick, she would bring those germs home to Zarek and then he would get sick. And that's her brother. Mm -hmm. Okay. She grew up pretty much being raised by nurses, which she had nurses from the time she was like four until um, she passed in December. And she was always very close to them. The way that she would talk to them, she just has a very like mature demeanor. She was such a woman. Was she your age? Was she the same age as you? She was 18. Okay, so she was a little younger than you even. She was young. She was under the mindset whenever we met that nobody else would ever understand how she felt. So we just kind of were there for each other on those days when we didn't know what to say. We were there in the highs. We were there in the lows. Um, The way that she loves and she loved other people, it's not the way that other people love people. But she had talked to me about, you know, her experience with depression and wanting to take her life and... It was something that um, that she struggled with every single day. I mean, I remember days that I was scared of going to sleep because I didn't know if she was going to have the power to stay. And I mean, people always think like, wow, like there's someone with her all the time. Like, wouldn't someone know? Like, wouldn't someone be aware? And that was the part that was like the most heartbreaking for me was seeing someone that was just endlessly surrounded by people so alone. I I just didn't think it was going to be this soon. And it's weird because, you know, with SMA, that's always a risk. A cold could wipe you out. I just didn't really realize how soon it was going to happen. And I had always, the way that we talked and the way that we planned our lives, we were going to be each other's maid of honors in our weddings. There were just so many things that I really thought that she was going to get. And I thought that, you know, once she got out of her house, once she got to go live on her own and like be a real adult like she wanted to, I really thought that things were just going to get better and that she was going to see the world is still beautiful and people her age aren't so bad. So she was just such a big presence in my life from literally across the country. And so it was really hard to hear that such a big part of your universe is gone. And it was just odd because I didn't realize how much I depended on her. And it was especially hard because in the end, like we weren't in the place that I thought we would be emotionally. We had a big argument and it was about, you know, living life for you. And that was something that I had always advocated. I'm like, this is the only life you have and it's already hard enough. Don't let yourself limit yourself based on how other people limit you. And it was just hard to even imagine a world that we didn't both exist in. I actually didn't even know that she was sick. And so whenever I got the phone call about her passing, I originally thought, oh my gosh, did she do this?
remember I had spent the day actually filming part of the podcast. Like on a regular day, I would have been alone in my room, but I wasn't. I was out and it was just cold enough that Taylor decided, hey, like, let's not go home yet. Let's go get food. We were just starting to eat when all of a sudden I got a phone call and it was from her brother. And I thought that that was odd. But a feeling in my stomach kind of told me that it was this. Like, I knew. I knew whenever I saw that phone call exactly what it was going to be. But I had thought it was for other reasons. And so I didn't answer the first time. Then I got a second phone call. And I was like, oh, no. Oh, no. And I started getting, like, a panic attack. And I started freaking out. And so I answered it. And it was her brother's nurse. He said, hey, are you busy? And I said, like, I'm actually at dinner, but, like, is everything okay? And I knew. He said earlier, like, Serena was getting rushed to the hospital, and I'm sorry, Miha, she didn't make it. And I was just, I was just so confused. I was just like, what? Like, what do you mean she didn't make it? What do you, how? What? What happened? And he just said, like, I'm sorry, like, her heart gave out. They tried to resuscitate her. And that was the only details that I had. And so I immediately broke down in the middle of the restaurant. Um, We left. I couldn't even formulate where to begin with what was wrong because there was just so so much wrong with that. Um, I was like, oh my gosh, I couldn't be there for her anymore. She needed to talk to me and I couldn't be there. And I remember calling her mom, or her mom calling me in the, in the morning, and I just need to know what happened. And she said, Serena got to the hospital, and she was getting her lungs checked, and she had a cold. Basically, her doctor told her, like, you need to go to the hospital. She got into the ambulance and everything, and, um, like, she started feeling like she was having a panic attack. She said, like, she couldn't breathe. All of a sudden, like, her heart stopped so they like tried to resuscitate her but I mean she's so tiny that like her body was just done and there was nothing they could do I mean didn't make it better but I felt a little bit better knowing that it wasn't something that she chose I just felt mad that she lived through so much just suffering I don't know that I'll ever be over that I don't know that I'll ever be at peace with the fact that I wasn't as available to her within her last months. I don't know. I keep waiting for it to stop hurting. And I don't think it ever really can. And I think anyone who's lost somebody major in their life will tell you that it hurts. You know, even after time goes by, they say it gets easier with time, but I don't know. I guess we'll just have to wait and see. So it almost sounds to me like you're having to make a decision between whether or not you could be a person with a disability or a person that struggles with their mental health. And I guess from Zarina's experiences, from your own experiences, like, what do you want people to know? I think I mean, people just... look at us and they think, wow, like, your life is really hard. I mean, people all the time come up to me 
grocery stores and stuff saying like you're such an inspiration like I couldn't do what you do in some ways I'm like you know what you're right you couldn't do this and a part of me wants to say that but like another part of me is like well some days can you even do it I think people kind of the way they compliment it is almost as if it's a choice they're like wow like you can do this that's awesome like I couldn't do that it's not that I can or can't do it it's just you do it because what else are you gonna do what, am I just going to die? Am I just going to sit here and just, like, never exist because I can't exist with this? You just do what you have to do. And, like, I think the part that's hard is when you do start feeling sad and angry and the way that you've been told that you look the whole time you've existed. And it makes you feel like, wow, maybe they're right. Maybe I can't do this. Maybe my life is garbage and I can't do this but at the same time you feel the pressure of not showing that because that's all anyone sees anyway and so you're trying so hard to just be seen as a normal and a normal person and to be seen as I'm sad today but that's just today and that's just in this moment it's hard to feel like you can have those reactions when people already assume that reaction so you feel like you work so hard for people to see like oh my gosh like your life is actually great like you're happy your life isn't ruined because you have a disability shocker and you work so hard to get people to see that so then to be seen that way you feel like all that hard work was for nothing and all those times that you wanted to cry and didn't are worthless because that's all I see anyway. Do you find yourself revisiting things? Yeah, she left a couple of voicemails on my phone. I have a lot, actually. Um, and there's good ones, there's bad ones. Hey, babe. Um, I know you're pretty cool, feeling like shit and low-key dying, but I miss you and... And even now, sometimes I'll hear a song and it'll be a song that we used to sing together. I can't even like listen to Demi Lovato without crying. It was just like she never leaves. She's never gonna leave me. And the night when she died, it snowed in Southern Texas. And that was also the night that it was cold enough, just cold enough that me and Taylor decided to stay together instead of me being by myself. She left Texas with snow. Like, what? <laughs> she just... She had to make an exit, I guess. She had to make a grand exit. I miss you. I miss my best friend. I hope you're alive. I hope you're okay. I love you. Special thanks to the whole Obvious Question team. This episode was produced by Trevor Hook, edited by Ryan Famuliner. Our social and online support came from Nathan Lawrence. And our executive producer... And BFF. ...is Aaron Hay. This has been The Obvious Question. I'm Becky Smith. I'm Maddie Lawson. Thanks, thanks for, for listening. listening.